0: Thank you very much, Rod. Um, On the uh, 15th of November, I'm due to give the Howard League Annual Lecture, and I'm going to give it on alternatives to custody. And what I'm going to do this morning is to give you a preview of some of the things that I'm going to say there. Uh, Before considering alternatives to prison, one needs to ask the question, what are the objects of sentencing? And the 2003 Criminal Justice Act gives us the answer. Punishment reduction of crime, including reduction by deterrence, reform and rehabilitation of offenders, protection of the public, and reparation. And I doubt if there's anyone here who would cavil with that list, but as Nicky Padfield asked, how about priorities? And who's to decide the appropriate sentence that's designed to achieve these objects? Uh, That task uh, is shared, and rightly shared, between Parliament and the judges, including, of course, the magistrates. In the old days, punishment was dealt with by capital and corporal punishment, and they involved very little demand on resources. The sentences that have replaced those in our more humane society place heavy demands on resources. Parliament, by taxation, has to provide those resources. And so Parliament has a legitimate interest in deciding on the sentencing options that are to to be open to the judges and the circumstances in which they should be exercised. Parliament, accountable to the electorate, is also probably the proper body to decide on the scale of punishment that is to be imposed, having regard to the resources that it is prepared to devote to that object. Keeping people in prison is very expensive, insofar as... That uh, as this is done by way of punishment, there is a simple question to be asked. How much are we prepared to pay to punish offenders? The resources taken to build an extra prison could be used to build an extra hospital or an extra school. Equally, there's a degree of tension between punishment and rehabilitation. Money spent on keeping offenders in prison by way of punishment is money that could be spent on rehabilitating them. Unless Parliament is prepared to provide whatever resources are necessary to give effect to the sentences that judges choose in their discretion to impose, Parliament must decide on the priorities to which judges are to have regard when sentencing. Now, I don't believe that these simple propositions have been fully appreciated by those responsible for formulating criminal policy to which Parliament is invited to give effect. The 2003 Act contains some simple propositions of principle that are coherent and, and to my eyes, admirable. The court must not pass a custodial sentence unless the offending was so serious that no alternative sentences can be justified. And in that event, the custodial sentence passed must be for the shortest term that is commensurate with the seriousness of the offending. These provisions require the judge or the magistrate to weigh up the seriousness of the offence, which is no easy matter. Uh, The Sentencing Guidelines Council, which I chair, has given guidance on this. We've advised that the seriousness of the offence depends upon the culpability of the criminal act or omission and the gravity of the consequence, the former being the more significant factor. Uh, On the way down today, I was looking at the agenda of the Sentencing Guidelines Council for this coming Friday, and I see we are going to be looking again at our definition of seriousness and asking ourselves the question, is it correct, or may it be, that it's resulting in prison sentences being imposed when they should not be? But Parliament has not been content to leave it to the judges to evaluate seriousness and to impose the appropriate sentence. Parliament has required judges to give particular weight to particular ingredients of an offence, almost always with the consequence that sentences have been increased. The most obvious examples are the starting points for the minimum terms to be served for murder, now laid down in the 2003 Act. These have had the effect of raising very substantially the terms of imprisonment to be served, not merely for murder, but for a whole range of other offences that must logically bear a relationship to the sentences imposed for murder. It's not clear to me that these consequences of the legislation were intended. Even less is it clear that the cost of these consequences were calculated and deliberately incurred as giving sound value for money. A 30-year minimum term for a murder Uh, where a gun was used, uh, means that you are investing £1.5 million to punish that offender. Is this a sensible way to spend our money? Uh, There needs, it seems to me, uh, to be a reasoned debate about how much of our resources should be spent on keeping people locked up simply to punish them for past offending. This interlinks with the more delicate question of whether the lengths of sentences that we impose accord with the demands of humanity. Such a debate will be of no avail. Indeed, it will probably not be a possibility unless we can divorce sentencing from politics. Will the day come, I wonder, when the rival parties cease competing to be seen to be tough on crime and devote as much attention to addressing the causes of crime? It's my belief that the first alternative to prison that must be considered if we are to have a long term solution to the prison problem is one that results in an earlier release into the community of those who've committed serious offences. Release after appropriate rehabilitation in prisons that are not overcrowded and subject to such supervision and assistance as is required to guard against the risk of reoffending. Uh, The next matter I'm going to talk about uh, when I give this lecture is going to be the IPPs. There's not time to go into those today, and they're not really uh, germane. Uh, All I will say is that uh, I consider that that particular legislation is flawed, and the flaws in that uh, legislation are going to have to be addressed. (coughs) How about the less serious offences? Government policy calls for very different treatment for those offenders whose offences are less serious and who are not dangerous. The 2003 Act uh, requires that if the seriousness of the offence is such that a non-custodial sentence can be justified, such a sentence must be imposed in preference to imprisonment. This might suggest that the seriousness of the offence is the only criterion that the court has to consider, when deciding whether or not to send an offender to prison. But the position is not as simple as that. The seriousness of the offence determines whether it crosses what is known as the custody threshold. But factors personal to the offender can justify the court in passing a non-custodial sentence, even where the custodial threshold is crossed. Now, I have some sympathy with the criticism of this concept of custodial threshold, but I find it rather difficult to get away from it when the Act specifically requires the sentencer to look at the seriousness of the offence and to ask himself the question, uh, having regard to that, is there any other way of disposing of this offender that can be justified? But in practice, there's quite a wide borderline area where it's open to the court to choose between sending the offender to prison or dealing with him in some other way. This is particularly true in the case of magistrates, whose jurisdiction is at present limited to imposing a sentence of six months' imprisonment for any single offence, and who should have sent off to the Crown Court the more serious cases where sentences of over six months' imprisonment may be appropriate. I'm well known for my enthusiasm for non-custodial sentences, where the nature of the offence is such as to enable them to be considered. They set out to achieve at least one, and usually both, of the following objects of sentencing, punishment and rehabilitation. But there will be a reluctance on the part of sentences to impose non-custodial sentences unless they're confident that they have a good chance of actually achieving those objects. It's also important that the public and the media that form the views of much of the public should believe in the efficacy of non-custodial sentences. At present, I fear that neither all sentences nor the media and the public are persuaded that non-custodial sentences are effective. The 2003 Act offers a wide range of requirements that can be imposed under a community order. Is the perception that these are not effective well-founded? And if so, what can be done about it? the vast proportion of crime is committed by people mostly men who are inadequate I've already spoken I haven't actually but I will have done (laughs) of the proportion of those imprisoned with mental problems A a similar proportion have problems with literacy and numeracy most are or have been addicted to drugs or alcohol Their problems can, in most cases, be traced back to infancy, to an inadequate or abusive family background. Offenders such as these do not take readily to rehabilitation, nor are many of them capable of the self-discipline that's required if punishment in the community is to be effective. There are, I believe, two vital ingredients to success, and they are linked. The offender must feel that there's someone who cares whether he succeeds or fails and the punishment or treatment must engender, at least in some degree, a feeling of self-respect. Each is likely to be a new sensation for the offender. The most common requirement imposed under a community order, apart from supervision, is unpaid work, more imaginatively titled community payback. In the year 2003-04, to about 5 million hours of unpaid work were completed by offenders, The following year, this had risen by about 30% to 6.6 million hours and 51,000-odd unpaid work completions. It's the government's aim to increase this to 10 million hours by 2011. I believe that community payback is a desirable alternative to punishment, uh, certainly in in the case of uh, short terms of imprisonment, and, and for the following reasons. First, imprisonment is expensive. The costs of community payback are much lower. Community payback is or should be a visible form of restorative justice. It does what its name suggests. It makes reparations to the community for criminal behavior. And community payback is more likely to achieve rehabilitation than a short sentence of imprisonment. Now, that last proposition is to some extent an act of faith Statistics do not demonstrate decisively that those sentenced to unpaid work are less likely to reoffend than those given short sentences of imprisonment. Research done in the Thames Valley, sponsored by the Esme Fairburn Foundation, indicates that the average level of attendance for offenders sentenced to unpaid work is no better than 60%. As it became rather widely publicised, I arranged to do a day of unpaid work in the Thames Valley area in the guise of a rather mature offender, to see what this was like. I spent a day working in a small group, cleaning and repainting a gloomy pedestrian underpass on the outskirts of Milton Keynes. Uh, The work was reasonably arduous, uh, and not particularly pleasant, but no worse than many a householder may voluntarily undertake by way of home decoration. I found it a positive experience. I and my fellow workers, who to my surprise and relief were not inclined to discuss why they were there, took an obvious satisfaction in doing the job well. Passers-by, including a community policeman, stopped to congratulate us on the improvement that we were producing. Uh, They knew uh, why we were there, for a sandwich board had been put in place announcing that we were performing community payback a group of small boys stopped to cross-examine us as to what this meant and left having learned a useful lesson about crime and punishment. My experience was not necessarily typical. A report published by the Inspectorate of Probation in 2006 found that there were wide variations in the quality of case management of unpaid work across the country and that not all of the projects provided the positive benefit to the offender that was intended. I learnt myself of potentially excellent projects that had founded for want of modest funding, uh, such as, for example, the funding needed to provide port for those doing the work. Uh, I hope that NOMS will give uh, and continue to give careful consideration to the lessons to be learnt in respect of unpaid work. I've got some ideas of my own. Uh, the projects should, not, should be satisfying, not demeaning. Each group of workers has to be supervised. Why should the supervisor not lead the work team as foreman, joining in the work rather than standing aloof and looking on? This would help to make the work a more positive and satisfying experience for those involved and remove the stigma attached to it. I suspect that some who discharge their unpaid work obligations might then be prepared to accept employment as team leaders and be particularly effective in that capacity. An attendance rate as low as 60% is depressing. Team leaders should be proactive in making sure that their teams turned up for work. I also believe that it would be no bad thing for judges or magistrates and others involved in the criminal justice system to spend the odd day working with the teams, not incognito as I was, but as volunteers joining in a worthwhile community activity. Community payback is primarily designed to serve the object of punishment. The other punitive requirement frequently imposed under a community order is that of curfew, usually monitored by electronic tagging. Uh, these are more often imposed as standalone orders than in combination with other requirements. Uh, in the year beginning of August 2005, about 17,600 standalone orders were made and a further 7,200-odd in combination with other requirements although those figures include orders made in conjunction with suspended sentences of imprisonment. I suspect that the thinking behind these orders is not merely that they're punitive, but that they give a degree of protection to the public from antisocial behaviour. I consider that these are useful alternatives to prison. They amount to partial deprivation of liberty without cost to the state, other than that of monitoring, which is contracted out to the private sector. They do not, however, of themselves, do anything positive to achieve rehabilitation. And it's the potential for rehabilitation that I find the most interesting aspect of community orders. I'd like to make some general comments about rehabilitation. There are very many people involved in the rehabilitation of offenders, some professionally and others as volunteers. They work with offenders in prison and in the community the primary motivation for most of them, or I think that I can say most of us, is not to benefit society in general by reducing reoffending, but the satisfaction of seeing individual offenders responding to the fact that someone cares about them and then beginning to develop an appreciation of and respect for their own individuality. Ultimately, rehabilitation is about personal relationships. Offenders who've, Acquired self-respect in this way can be almost messianic in their support for rehabilitation. They also carry far more credibility with offenders than the rest of us. Very often, having been rehabilitated themselves, they're anxious to help to rehabilitate others, and we must, where possible, take advantage of this enthusiasm. The St. Giles Trust, which trains offenders who are serving prison sentences to help their fellow prisoners to deal with family problems and to find accommodation and employment when they come out of prison, is an example of how to do this. The offending rate of those who've qualified is very low indeed, and the Trust is now employing a number of these to help with rehabilitation in the community. Uh, Rob Owen gave up lucrative employment as a merchant banker when he applied successfully to be chief executive of the trust. He's convinced that if the trust is given the funds, it will produce a saving of tenfold or more in the cost to society of reoffending. But how can he prove this? How can he persuade Helen Edwards, who must in turn persuade the Treasury, that he's correct? Uh, and this is the rub. The satisfaction of seeing the lives of individual offenders transformed is not going to motivate NOMs to approve the use of substantial funds for rehabilitation projects like this one. If the funding needed for rehabilitation of offenders is to be provided, it's necessary to show that the uses to which it's put are cost-effective. This, I believe, is an area of prime importance, and for that reason I'm very glad that we've heard from Chloe. There's been a tendency to judge the efficacy of rehabilitation by applying simple criteria. What is the rate of reoffending within two years of conviction? What percentage of offenders undergoing drug treatment completed the course? Uh, statistics such as these are of some assistance, but they don't tell the whole story. Statistical analysis is extremely complex. If those given community sentences have a lower reoffending rate than those given short sentences, and there's some evidence that they do, how can one be certain that this is a reflection of the effect of the sentences rather than of the factors that led the courts to choose between the two types of sentence in the first place? I believe that community sentences, when compared with short custodial sentences, are cost-effective, but it is of critical importance that the statisticians help us to demonstrate that this is indeed the case. I would like to end by widening the topic a little. The need for rehabilitation is usually a sign that society has failed. Rehabilitation is attempting to underpin lives that have developed without foundations. How much better to provide the missing foundations as the lives developed? The juvenile delinquency that precedes adult delinquency is usually the consequence of poor or no parenting. Uh, In Japan, which I visited earlier this year, family justice embraces juvenile delinquency, save where the offence is particularly serious. The family judge is assisted by a team of highly qualified professionals, and where a young person is charged with an offence, this is investigated and dealt with as a family problem. The breakdown of family life in this country is such that this approach would probably not be viable. Indeed, the social services and the voluntary sector do their best to protect children from the consequences of inadequate or dysfunctional parenting. Since I've become Lord Chief Justice, I've learned a lot about the work being done by the voluntary sector. I've been involved in some of it. Once again, it's largely about showing the child that there's someone who cares for him or her, and that he or she is somebody who deserves that care. Let me mention a few. Kids' Company and Chance UK, each of which arranges for individual mentoring by volunteers of children in need of this at different stages of their lives. Endeavour Training and Youth at Risk, which help young people to discover and achieve their potential for individual achievement and at the same time teaches them to interact with others in a positive social environment. Youth Music, which takes young people off the streets and opens their eyes to their ability for individual creativity. These are just the tip of the iceberg of individual organizations that work in part because they build relationships between young people and adult role models. Each of these has to struggle to obtain funding, whether from the public or private sector. How is one to know which are the most cost-effective? How is their value to be compared to that of organizations that set out to tackle criminality by education of one kind or another, such as Smart Justice and Prison Me No Way. I hope that this forum uh, will give those who have to take those decisions food for thought. Thank Thank you.